Voltaire once mockingly described Easter as a feast celebrated by Christians in remembrance of a God who was publicly hanged. He went on to describe the Lord's Supper as Christians feeding on their God, doubtless to ascertain if, like the phoenix, he will spring into life from that which has devoured him. Voltaire could not have known how right he was that we do come together to celebrate the fact that our God in Christ reconciled the world from himself by hanging on a tree, publicly shamed, becoming a curse for us, scorned and mocked, that he hung there not only to pay for our sins, every single one of our sins from our most defiant words and deeds to the most secret thoughts of our hearts, but actually became sin for us, taking our guilt and our shame unto himself. And now, alive again, he springs up in us new life. This day of Easter is so full of hope that even the snarky, disdainful words of a God-hating humanist seem tinged with this stuff. The most triumphant climax of any story ever told, ever, when Christ came out of the tomb. And perhaps it's even more powerful because that wonderful, beautiful climax comes after such darkness, such deep and horrible darkness. And that is where the Easter story begins. It starts in darkness. Don't miss that. In fact, John says that they began their day leaving the house, the women, that is, while it was still dark. Matthew alludes to the same thing. While it was still dark, they left the house. It was still dark all around them. And we think of what must have been said in the privacy of the upper room and in their homes where they were hiding and gathering and clinging to each other during Holy Saturday when Jesus lay in the tomb. We know that for many of them the hope was gone as Cleopas and the other disciples said to each other as they walked down the road, we had hoped, we had hoped, but that hope is now over. I imagine they offered each other as they gathered in the upper room words of empty consolation. Well, he's gone to be with his father. It's for the best. He's in a better place now. The world didn't deserve him. All we can do is honor his body with myrrh and aloe and honor his memory by trying to live by the principles that he taught or some such empty thing. And fear was gripping them. Darkness and fear. Fear is a major theme, actually, in this passage. It comes up again and again and again and then again. And fear is what kind of hangs behind all of this. It's the backdrop for this entire event. Fear is what motivated the Sanhedrin to put together a kangaroo court and, and manipulate a death sentence for a man who had hurt no one. It was because of fear that armed men were placed to guard a tomb that would soon be empty, a tomb that had nothing but a dead man in it, from who? Fishermen and tax collectors and a bunch of people who would have no hope of recovering that body. Fear motivates the cover-up that we read about in verses 11 and following, in which the guards are all paid off to lie and say that they had fallen asleep on the job and the disciples had crept in during the night and stolen the body. And while we know when we wake up on Easter morning that it is joyful 
We know that this day is a day of he is risen. When the women woke up and left the house, no one told them it was Easter. They didn't know. And it was dark and it was fearful. And as they walked, there would have been layers of fear. There would have been the immediate fear for their own safety. You do not walk in the dark in the ancient Roman world. There's nothing out there that's good. Well, they wanted to leave. You see, they they couldn't go on Saturday. It was a Sabbath and working, including uh, anointing a body or moving a stone. That was all forbidden. And so they waited and waited. And the safest thing to do, what, what everybody would have told them to do if they had asked, would be just wait until the sun's all the way up and it's full light and then go out. But they couldn't wait. And so they left before dawn. And as they walked, I'm sure they were fully aware of the dangers lurking everywhere, thieves and worse. And as they walked, we're told that they talked about how will we move the stone. There was the fear that the whole thing would be in vain. And had, had they heard about the guard that had been placed there, undoubtedly they were fearful of that, as they should be. Even if it's light out, you do not want to be an oppressed people with basically no rights in a semi-secluded area with these animals known as Roman soldiers especially not women with them in a secluded place. And even if somehow they were able to safely arrive there, remove the stone, and do what they wanted to do, there was the greatest fear, which was to have confirmed for them by seeing Jesus' body in the new light of day that their Lord was in fact dead and everything he had promised with him. So that's the background. It's a dark morning, and it's a fearful morning. Now, chronologically, the first thing that happens at the tomb here is not the first thing we read. It's actually the earthquake. There was a great shaking of the earth, and in the scriptures, earthquakes almost always mean this. Can everybody pay attention? God's about to say something. Or God is about to do something, and in his divine action, he's going to say something. There was a great earthquake when Jesus died, and here is another when he rises. And this earthquake, it shakes everything at the tomb and turns it upside down, and there is an instant reversal of the power dynamic. Think about the sense of absolute security in the moments before that earthquake. You've got these guards. This is overkill, right? A Roman seal on a stone, a Roman guard, all there to make sure a dead guy stays where he is. And yet in a moment, the seal is broken, the stone is moved, the guards are out cold, there has been a complete reversal. Matthew plays a little play on words here. He uses the same root for earthquake as he does for the guards shaking as they fall and become like dead men for fear of the sight of the angel. They begin to quake. They quake in their sandals and fall over. And that's important. I mean, this is an enormous reversal. This this reversal is not just somebody being conked on the head and you put on their costume or something like in a a television show. I mean, we think about a guard being thwarted as all that happens all the time. You know, on on TV you might see the sort of stereotypical uh, old getting near retirement and he doesn't care anymore, out of shape cop, right? Or the schlubby kind of security guard and they're like, they run 20 feet after the bad guy and then they're like, ah, never mind, I don't care. Too old for this stuff. Oh no. We're talking about a Roman guard. These these are literally the most physically fit and disciplined men you can imagine. Sixteen of them. 
This is like eight Mitch Zajacs and eight Akeem Harshmans. Okay, these guys are ready. They are, they are battle-hardened. They are fearless. They were not allowed to sit down or lean on anything while they were standing guard. Not at all. And if any of them fell asleep, all 16 would be put to death. You think for a minute any of them would let their fellow guards fall asleep or even get close? And yet these powerful, battle-hardened men become like dead men, and the dead man becomes alive. What a reversal. And I love the casual language about the angel. The angel comes down, and after defeating all 16 of these soldiers by his very presence, he pushes the stone aside and sits on it. He is allowed to sit on duty. Why? Because there's no need to vigilantly guard this tomb. It's empty. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And after all that, as the women arrive and see this insane scene, the angel's first words to them are, do not be afraid. As you picture this, don't forget, the ground is still ostensibly littered with these guys who are passed out from fear of the angel. Do not be afraid. That's a little weak of a translation, actually. In the Greek, the word you is in there. The you in the plural, y'all. And it's emphatic. Don't you be afraid. As if to say, yeah, these jokers, they were right to be afraid. To swoon and pass out like Niles Crane or something. But you have nothing to fear. And when the women hear these words, they do not fall to the ground trembling in fear. When they hear the words, fear not, belonging to Jesus, they are comforted by the news that will terrify Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas. He is not here. He is risen. These women who witnessed the crucifixion now see the empty tomb, and they recognize that everything has changed, that this is a new day. Look at just the last verse of the chapter before, and as it moves into chapter 28. Chapter 27 ends with, So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Can you hear the stone? Right in place. The guard comes together, swords at their sides, it's finished. Jesus said it is finished, and it looks like it is finished for him and his followers. The very next verse begins, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Now we're moving from darkness toward the dawn, toward the light. And this dawn would be a new dawn in ways that they could not even begin to fathom. It's tempting to play games with the words that Matthew uses here because the word for Sabbath also means week, sabbaton. And so we might even say that after the week was over, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, the old week, the old age has come to an end, a new week has begun, and a new Sabbath has arrived. Christians will gather now on the first day of the week, not the last. The dawn has come, a new dawn a new day. And we now live toward the dawn. As Christians, we are oriented toward the dawn. We even bury our dead facing toward the rising sun. Did you know that? That's always been a Christian tradition. For those who are in Christ, in the words of Adoniram Judson, the future is as bright as the promises of God. And as this new day dawns, the darkness disappears. There's been 
echoes of this and promises of this from way back in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And yet in John 1, we read the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not comprehended it. Not everyone responds favorably to the light. We see that here. These guys lying down like dead men, and these women who are beside themselves. Why such different responses? Well, the soldiers feared the light because they instinctively knew their hearts were dark. It's like if you turn over a fallen tree limb in the woods, it's starting to rot, or you pick up a big rock. What do you see? Bugs, centipedes, and they're all doing what? Scurrying toward the darkness. That is not how we live as Christians. We live our lives toward the dawn of the first day, of the new week. In the words of St. John, we walk in the light as he is in the light. And like Moses, we've been in his presence and we can't even hide it. This angel is the same way. He shined with the light of God himself. His appearance was like lightning and his garments were as white as snow. In his writings, John gives us three statements about God. They're called anarthrous. They mean God is blank. He says God is spirit. God is love. And God is light. And Christ brings that light to us. It's Jesus' voice in Genesis 1 on the first day of the first week that speaks into the darkness and chaos and says, let there be light. And what made the darkness before this so dark is that His very light dimmed. Dimmed and dimmed until it had gone out. Till the sun refused to shine. In liturgical churches on Good Friday, they will have the, the Christ candle or Paschal candle in certain traditions, and they will actually put it out at that point in the service. And then light it again on Easter morning. Well, this morning at our sunrise service, we lit a Christ candle reminding us that you cannot snuff out the light of Christ. He will not be darkened. He comes back because he is the bright and morning star, as he himself tells us in the last chapter of the entire Bible. That's the hope that we have. Then in verse 10, Jesus actually comes on the scene as the women are on their way to do the task they've been given. They, they go off and he approaches them. And as he appears in the flesh, he first says, hi. And then his very next words are, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, he tells them. They've already heard that. He thinks they need to hear it again. And they fell down and grasped his feet and worshipped him. Now falling down like the soldiers had might be an act of terror, but the boldness to grab onto him, to grab his, his feet which had been pierced by the nail, and to worship him shows that they were overcome with joy. And we see here that Jesus, as he, is, as he walks in his resurrected body, is not some phantom, not some spirit, not some idea or metaphor. He is truly a man with flesh and blood. But what's more, we see Jesus accept their worship. He's not just a man. He is God in the flesh. And he tells them, go and tell my brothers what you've seen. And as they go, we, we read that they are filled with fear and great joy. Now, the angel told them to not be afraid. Jesus told them not to be afraid. 
And then they got up and they left in fear and great joy. What's going on? Are they being disobedient? Is this a case of the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak? Well, I want you to notice uh, several things. First of all, it's fear and great joy, not joy and great fear. The joy is at the wheel. And because of that, the fear that they experience is not the sort of terror that overcame the Roman guard. Rather, it is the reverential fear that we are commanded to have for God at all times. Hebrews tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Romans 3, we read about the uh, ungodly and how there is no fear of God before their eyes. As we've been reading through the book of Acts in Acts chapter 9, we read that the, the churches in Galilee and in Judea were walking in the fear of the Lord. And it's presented as a good thing. It's a respect, a reverence, an awe for God. And when that sense of awe and majesty, that reverential fear of God, begins to change in us, if the enemy tries to introduce shame and, and tries to introduce a separation between us and God, and, and perhaps we begin to turn away from a reverential fear toward being afraid of our Creator, we hear His comforting voice saying to us, do not be afraid. We remember his words in Revelation chapter 1. St. John saw him. Hadn't seen him in quite some time. And when he saw him, he beheld him in a vision. That's frightening to read about. I can't imagine being there. Seeing his feet like burnished bronze. His eyes like fire. His hair like wool. And John writes, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. What does that sound like? Sounds like the soldiers, right, who fell down at the, at the empty grave. But the very next sentence, but Jesus lay his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. We are not approaching our God with the trepidation and shaking fear that Esther must have felt as she approached the king, not knowing if she was welcome in his presence, not knowing if she'd be accepted or put to death. No, look at how Jesus talks about his disciples right here. He says, go and tell my brothers. Not go and tell those dirt bags who turned on me and dropped the ball. Not go and tell my servants that they're not very good servants because every single one of them fled. No, go and tell my brothers. There is an intimacy. In John 15, Jesus says, I call you friends. There is an intimacy, a relationship. I, I hear sometimes people try and make this distinction. They'll say, I'm not religious. I don't like religion. I don't have a religion. I have a relationship with Jesus. And I think that's a false distinction, particularly because Scripture tells us about religion that is very much acceptable to God and true religion. But I understand what people mean. And the more I talk to people who speak in those terms, I, I know that what they mean is they're tired of religion that's shrouded in fear. Fear of misstepping and losing God's favor. Fear of falling into sin one time too many. Fear of not doing enough good stuff to make the cut at the end. Fear of being too happy in this life and making God mad. And that kind of religion is toxic and it's useless and it makes its adherents miserable. True religion is motivated, rather, by great joy. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the end of our faith is drawing close to our Savior, knowing he has conquered every enemy on our behalf, knowing that no weapon formed against us will prosper, that, yes, we ought to feel a reverence and awe, a reverential fear of the Lord, like the apostle tells us, but never to be afraid of him. Fear disappears into joy and faith in that case. Many people will tell us, well, I'm not afraid of God. I'm not afraid of what's going to happen. I don't, I don't worry about some invisible guy in the sky. And it's true that fear can be ignored by wishful thinking or covered over with denial temporarily. But only true faith can overcome fear. And true faith is not based on wishful thinking, but on something real and true. Our culture today views faith as something very subjective, private and personal. It's inside of you. More about feeling than facts. Sadly, that's eking into the church in many places. But that is not how the scriptures present our faith. Paul says this is so, this is so hinged on one event that truly happened in history that if that event, the resurrection, didn't happen, we should be pitied above all men. Our faith is useless and we are still in our sins. But if the resurrection did happen, what great joy it ought to bring to our hearts. Luther said this, the resurrection is comfort against the devil, sin, death, and hell. The first commandment, not only to the women at the tomb, but to all baptized and believing Christians is, fear not. And when you are afraid, remember the empty tomb. If Jesus kept that promise, how could we think for a moment that he would not keep every promise that he has made? At the sunrise service, we sang that great modern hymn, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, in which we find the line, the power that raised him from the grave now lives in us to powerfully save. The same power, the same spirit. We read the text about Elijah and Elisha, and Elijah was taken up into heaven, and Elijah said, I want you to give me that spirit that you've got. Give me a double portion. I want that spirit when you go. Jesus didn't have to be needled about it. He said, it's good that I go and I leave behind the helper, the Holy Spirit, to indwell you so that you'll know the very power that raised Christ from the grave now lives in us. And when you feel empty or spiritually dead or hopeless, remember the empty tomb. And remember that the Spirit of God is alive in you. Bringing you freedom. Freedom to live unafraid. As we've studied the book of Acts over the past almost a year, we've seen this effect. How this quivering band of nobodies denying Jesus with, under the least bit of pressure, running away, scared, huddling in the upper room, will go out and change the world now, preaching boldly in the temple, standing unafraid before governors and kings and rulers, even going to their own deaths rather than deny their Savior. Even in the face of death, they will never give in to the darkness. Paul quotes the Old Testament when talking about the resurrection. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And we know that though we die, yet we live if we are in Christ Jesus. With all the horrible events surrounding Notre Dame recently, I've been hearing about the hunchback in Notre Dame, about Victor Hugo, and I came across this poem by him that I think is so fitting for Easter morning. Be like the bird 
that pausing in her flight, a while on boughs too slight, feels them give way beneath her and yet sings, knowing that she hath wings. When we feel the ground beneath us begin to slip away or the earth begin to shake, remember that by the wings of faith, Christ will lift us up. The same Jesus who said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises made by Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for the very public keeping of the promise of the resurrection. And Lord, may it give us nothing but hope and confidence in you, that you will keep every promise, that every promise in Christ is yes and amen, that we can live unafraid, that we can fear the Lord in the midst of great joy, feel awe and reverence for a Father who loves us. We can look to Christ, each of us, as brothers and sisters of our great Messiah. What a joyous day it is on Easter to remember this reversal when darkness gave way to light and fear to great joy. Lord, may we not just sit here and enjoy the joy for a moment and then go back to life as usual. May we leave this place as the women did in fear and great joy, ready as the women did to tell anyone who will listen, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.